like if you can run an efficient business, at the end of the day, you're securing more jobs down the road so you can avoid this. And so I think that's a good playbook of you know, the next set of what well, if you call these Twitters, if you call these the Google and some large, large companies in the world. You know, there's the second take is you are still very, there are still very much talented people working at these companies that were shipping real products that are really smart, that are really ambitious. And you're sort of set now with this, this interesting equation, right? It's a math equation. So you have really strong tech talent, whether it's technical, whether it's whatever, what have you, that is available for the first time on the market. And you have a sort of, um, you know, largely active, as still as you want to say, early stage venture ecosystem. And so you have supply and demand kind of meeting each other for the first time. And I'm very optimistic and I'm starting to see trends of this already. People leaving these large companies and starting to build something ambitious for the first time and, and you know, trying out. Now there's a huge downfall of co-founders that you can meet. And so, you know, for the long-term prosperous tech ecosystem in, in, in the next U- 10 years in the U.S. or even globally, I think we're going to have more value creation. It's just going to be more dispersed. I think there is something to the old saying of, you know, assuming fraud until proven genius. And I think if you start there, so you're not fully optimistic into buying everything, but you're consciously and rationally optimistic into what the vision looks like. I think second, and maybe the case from my understanding with uh, those two companies, particularly the founders there, is that usually uh, there are one to two to three people tied to those people who are actually doing all the work. And how is that relationship with the people who are actually, whether it's like another co-founder or technical co-founder, what does that relationship look like? And is that relationship actually based on the center of truth, right? Or deception? I think as an investor, um, it's important, especially at stages, of course, you build a relationship with the founder, but even more important to build a relationship with the team. And so you have a direct way to actually sort of suss out, you know, fiction from reality. Welcome back to the Generation Hustle podcast. This is season four of our VC series, where we sit down with some of the top investors in tech and share their stories of how they invest, their careers into VC, and thoughts on tech as a whole. On the season four opener, I sat down with my good friend, Zane Urzavi, principal at Ridge Ventures. Ridge Ventures is an early stage venture fund who has backed the likes of Discord, Braze, and Zipline, to name a few. In this episode, you'll learn about how Zane made this transition from operator to VC, how he handles charismatic founders and different personalities, and his thoughts on big tech and its impact on the broader landscape of innovation. So let's jump right in. Welcome back, everyone. Season four has just started of our VC series. And today we have Zane from Ridge Ventures. What's up, man? Hey, I'm uh, really, really happy to be here, man. Big fan of uh, what you've been able to do in the past seasons. Yeah, I appreciate your feedback and your support. We originally reached out kind of cold. You messaged me on LinkedIn. So that's always a warm feeling when you have supporters just kind of reach out to you. So again, appreciate that. Yeah, let's get right into this. So we always start off with kind of learning about your adventure into tech and maybe the perhaps the path that took you into VC. So do you want to highlight for us, first of all, kind of the experiences uh, that led you down the path of tech? Yeah, my I mean, it's it's such a random walk, and I think that's generally true of this industry, both in tech and venture. But let's see, I grew up in Utah, and um, you know, I was actually doing my undergrad degree in Utah, and I was studying political science. And like senior year, I was like, okay, maybe I go to law school. But like, frankly, I had no idea. And you know, I sort of like any um, you know good uh, good college student. You know, the first mm-hmm. two years were spent having fun, and the second two years was realizing, oh crap, I have a life ahead of me, and I should probably yeah, you had to do out. something with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so like towards that sort of second part of, 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 you know, my latter half of college, um, I really sort of fixated on wanting to go to uh, law school, partly because I think that's where my background was actually leading me towards. And I think, you know, generally what I found with law in particular is um, it's one of those industries that you can drive true and true impact depending on what you do. And so senior year came around and I was about to graduate. And then I read Zero to One, which I think was, you know, was like 2014, 13. So kind of a cliche now, less of a cliche then, I would say. 
I remember reading that book. I read it within like an hour or three hours or so mm-hmm. and effectively walked away so empowered by that movement of impact, I think, tech and then finance on the outskirts, particularly by Jihad in that. And so um, that led me to an internship my senior year at Pelion Ventures, a Utah-based fund where I was at previously. And then from there, you know, I sort of got embedded and enthused by, uh, you know, one company in particular, which was in their portfolio, which is Cloudflare. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in the meetings with the partners and looking at the company very early on. This is Cloudflare circa like 2014 or 15. Yeah. And, but you look like, clearly there's some hockey stick growth. I cannot tell you what was on the X or Y axes. But like it was like generally clicking. But the thing that really interested me most about Cloudflare was um, now knowing I don't want to do law school, right? And now knowing I'm like, okay, I'm sort of at this weird impasse of what I do with my life. But I really like tech and like the fast movement from what I've read in this book and what I'm getting yeah. early on from my experience. And Cloudflare in particular, knowing I want to be in tech, the learning curve to actually understand what a layer three or layer seven web application or firewall or CDN content delivery network actually does is very complicated. But I knew now going in tech, if I were to leave Cloudflare, the learning curve to go to another company would be far less. Actually understanding how the product comes to market, what you do technology behind the scenes. And so based off of that rationale, I was lucky enough to join Cloudflare early on at Employee 300. I was on this team called Special Projects. You know, effectively it's like our core dev team, but think about it more of like an Ocean's Eleven team at Cloudflare that works cross-functionally, you know, with product, product strategy, um, sales, marketing, et cetera. And then I spent four years uh, getting sort of, you know, I somehow, it was sort of, I was getting paid for like a CS degree. And then, you know, 2020 came about and uh, the good folks at Pelion reached back out. I was lucky to jump to Pelion and that's where I started my foray from Pelion now to, to Rich Ventures. So sort of a random walk with an identity crisis right after graduation. Yeah, it seems to me like it's a common thread around the idea of having an uncommon, um, say, trajectory into VC. And it kind of finds yourself, like you kind of find it or it finds you kind of thing versus like, hey, I'm going to apply for this role. First of all, like those roles are not usually readily posted in the first place. So right. that's one thing that obviously like I'd like to share with folks is like, you know, you have to kind of build a network. You kind of have to kind of build some experience doing that. But one thing you talked about is, is the book Zero to One. Um, that was kind of the catalyst for me as well, getting into tech. And I really felt like you very empowered. What do you feel like was the biggest takeaway for you um, kind of reading that book? And maybe how has it applied to some of your thought process uh, when it comes to investing today? Yeah, I, I think there's like two things I would pull apart from that book. One is, and what was very clear with, I think, just tech and startup life in general is the propensity for action. And because, you know, generally you're going from this world that is fixed to this world of what could be. And you could philosophize, but reality comes down to the best companies sort of act and force it into manifestation. And so that propensity to action was something that was pretty interesting to me that stood out. You know, sort of tied to that was um, this overarching energy, if you will, or mindset into uh, chasing curiosity and saying, well, actually, I'm not happy with the status quo. Why don't we build an entry into the silver and company industry? Or why, are we ch- why aren't we challenging more of these sort of, you know, first why don't we think from first principles? And so it was this propensity action and inherent curiosity, I think that intertwines those two worlds. Do you think particularly what happens well in terms of also venture recruiting to your point of it being such a random walk? You know, if you look, I think at some of the best VCs or ones who get into venture, I think the general common variable is how do you continue to satisfy your curiosity? Are you naturally a curious person? I do think that having a propensity to act will also help you in the industry, recruiting in or even staying. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think urgency towards action is something that I've tried to deploy at all the startups that I've been at um, and kind of may, almost kind of creating a culture uh, around that because, you know, that you only have a limited amount of time to scale um, before, you know, your competitors perhaps catch up or do something. But let's move on to the fact that now you're at Ridge Ventures. So what I'd love to learn is what is kind of your current focus around uh, your thesis, I guess, uh, in terms of the investments. And how does Ridge itself aim to kind of help provide founders uh, the support and or platform to succeed? Yeah, so a little about Ridge, and I'll, I'll sort of discuss our value add and how we think about ourselves respective to the industry. Ridge, we're early stage. We categorize that as C to C, saying we've been around 20 years. Uh, first actually started as VG Ventures. 
uh, and then you know, over time shifted to to Rage as its own institutional brand. Um, for us, we arbitrage sizes for us are anywhere from three to seven of us new market vehicle. And you know, I think over the first inception or a couple of years of Rage, we were sort of zigzagging in terms of our actual market segment of where we focus. We come to the realization we really like enterprise software. And we categorize enterprise software as infrastructure from layer three of the OSI layer up to layer seven, the application layer. And so that's allowed us to partner with great companies and work for great companies such as, you know, Discord to Fastly to Volt to Braze and a few others across the stack. And uh, part of our inception and reason to go into enterprise software was we found it to be pretty resilient across multiple cycles, having been around 20 years, in addition to anti-cyclical. And so what do I mean by that is there's going to be different iterations of enterprise software from a infrastructure application level. You know, think early 90s, right? You had, um, you know, you had Sun Microsystems, you had Novell, and then, you know, you had SAP, you had um, Oracle, and some of these businesses are still around today, but you've had uh, iterations of those into the you know, sort of 20th and 21st century, whether it's the large cloud providers, whether it's infrastructure providers, such as Cloudflare or Cloudflare or application level providers, right? From CRM to, I think, other companies in the space. And so we found it to be quite resilient. It goes through iterations and maturations. And, uh, you know, we think we've developed an edge here in this industry. And uh, this goes to, I think, to our value add. One thing we do particularly well at Rage is we facilitate customer introductions in a non-scalable way. We have what's called our Rage Revenue Network, 330 plus executives, you know, at large coastal companies that are synonymous with tech. And companies that are across the coast in between, but still have a daily impact. And uh, we broker these introductions to ideal buyers in these respective organizations, so much so that we actually track it, so much so that we actually pencil, pencil into our term sheets and hold ourselves accountable if we don't hit a certain quota for you um, as a founder in ways we don't let us out. Luckily, we have an idea, but so a few ways we've done this is, you know, if we don't give you X introductions to your ideal ICP, Mrs. or Mr. Founder, we'll revoke a board seat or dilute our preferred common, for example. And so um, it's something we're very happy about. It's something that we think is moving eventually the right decision. I think allows us uh, uh, direction, excuse me, and we think allows us to keep us uh, competitive so we can serve as founders in the right way that they deserve. Yeah, no, I, I think that I find that really fascinating because I think most founders have the conception around VC as a firm that provides you capital. Um, and in today's world, you have to do a lot more than just provide a commodity because it's accessible right. in most places. And especially the last two years, like money was flying left and right. Obviously, it's become a little more tough now, especially for later stages. But I love the fact that you guys hold yourself accountable to your founders saying, we are like going to help you out no matter what. And if we don't, that's on us. And, you know, we'll take a hit from our ownership or whatever that might be. So I think that's very unique. You also alluded to kind of the fact of how kind of VC is changing. And so what do you feel like the future of VC is and where it's headed? Uh, one trend I'm noticing a lot of is solo GPs popping up. And, you know, I, I'm also seeing many like kind of existing firms kind of struggling to meet investor expectations, specifically like LPs and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe just actually go back to is um, we want the ownership, but we think it's important to earn the ownership, right? And uh, I think that comes in time. Uh, to your point in terms of like the trend of where I think VC is going, I actually think it's it's interesting. I'm sort of uh, evaluating this myself. And so as any historical count, I've looked at, you know, 99, 2000 to, uh, you know, 07 to 09 during the great financial crisis and sort of saw what happened to the industry at large. I think you had two large trends that happened. Um, and you had winners and losers for both. And so if you think about, I think, early 2000s post-dot-com crash, you had one thing that went well, particularly for firms, and one thing that didn't, which is thematic approach and hoping your thesis is the right one. There are a few firms, I think, post-2000, uh, where they bet the house on one specific sector, and it happened to be too early. I think most notoriously, notoriously such as climate. And some firms that actually bet there, I think, you know, um, sort of demise. And you had some firms who timed the, 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 the thematic particularly well. And I think Excel is a great example here. They did consumer very well coming out of this with a fair pair of mind. And that worked out, I think, for, for Excel and other firms who had the right theme. And so I think you're sort of seeing this now is where is that thesis going and are these firms going to be collectively right? So that's one sort of takeaway from, um, you know, early 2000. 
Now, the second is in the great financial crisis, another interesting thing happened is that you saw a lot of firms geographically actually shift. And so you saw firms shift from East Coast to West Coast. And some that did it particularly well are still around today in the way that you and I both know. And there are firms that actually decided to stay entrenched in their respective geographies. And those firms actually didn't do well and some aren't around because of this. And so I think venture might revert back to some of those trends, especially with COVID and what that may look like. But to your point, solo GPs is more prevalent, um, you know, where I think historically you didn't have that. I actually think solo GPs are great for the ecosystem um, as a sort of additive layer. And this assumes this startup world and venture world is finite, right? So I think you're finding more, it is just easier to start a company. And it is, you know, still kind of uh, relatively the same in terms of getting capital from institutionals, but there's a large demand to be met. And I think solo GPs are doing a phenomenal job there. You know, second is actually think they're providing um, valuable insights into the fa- for the founders that they get to work with. Where I feel like if you, even if you're an operator, but you jump, you know, two years out of operating, three years out of operating as an investor, that's a long time. Things change, right? Building a business two years ago is not the same as building a business today. And so I think solo GPs have a closer insight into that and can provide sort of that quicker feedback loop that big founders usually need and often sometimes don't get from institutional brands. Um, and I think it's a good alternative to just capital raising in today's environment in more of a skillful way that I think founders need, where I feel like historically that was you know, crowdsourcing for fundraising. But now this seems like you're still getting capital, but you're getting expertise in a way that helps you. And your business go from, you know, zero to like 0.5. And then one is when institutional investors come into play. So I, I'm actually generally bullish on the, the ecosystem of solo, solo GPs. Yeah. And so maybe adding on to that, one uh, individual I love following and reading their Twitter threads is Joshua from Lux Capital. Yeah. Um, he goes into this concept around wet powder uh, versus dry powder. And so I think he recently posted or someone posted uh, some data. I think it was Carta. Uh, they're discussing this idea around how majority of these uh, rounds now are what we call bridge rounds. And for those who don't know, bridge rounds is just additional capital to keep your existing kind of portfolio companies afloat versus like dry capital, which is deployed into new companies per se. What is what is your kind of thought process around how this kind of trend right now that's happening impacts maybe some of the kind of decision-making processes around some of the large institutional uh, investors? Yeah, the environment has definitely changed. And I think there is more of a propensity towards insider rounds, um, particularly well, particularly if your company is doing well in your own portfolio and um, allocating more dollars in, which in my opinion gives you more ownership of your quote-unquote winners that fall under the power law, which is you know, sort of derived as 20%. Out of a portfolio, you know, 80% of the companies will more or less fail, but 20% will drive almost the value. Yeah. And so this is actually a good example of how do you concentrate that, that capital in a scarce environment uh, into your winners. And so you have aggregate higher ownership at exit. Um, and so it's certainly something we're seeing, you know, I think to your other point in terms of bridge financings, um, this is the reality I think a lot of investors are going to have to face is being pretty prudent on actually understanding how to allocate correctly the opportunity cost of doing it. But also this is a good time for other investors too, right? If a company or fund doesn't want to invest on this bridge financing for some reason or another, considering the macro environment, it could be a great time to actually find a good company to partner with on the net new side of the house for a different fund to come in. Uh, partly because, especially at the early stage where you know, you're living off of two to three years of data, there's still so many variables that are unknown. Mm. And so... Um, you know, you hear all these stories of like these legacies of these fantastic companies, you know, four or five years in into the company formation, it, it looks nothing like what the company looks like being public. Yeah. And so, and so there's some asymmetric insight. I think if you're very prepared going into specific markets that can help you partner with these companies that more or less are sort of getting bridge financing or, you know, sort of on the death of despair in terms of what the market looks like. Yeah. So it's going to be a very interesting time, I'd say, for the next couple quarters to see kind of what companies survive, kind of, you know, dissolve. Um, really interested seeing from just from a finance perspective as well. Okay, so moving on to like actual kind of experiences while you have been a VC. Uh, one thing I've always kind of wanted to get opinions on is around 
their definition, a successful investor. So in your opinion, what does that look, look like uh, beyond the obvious, you know, performance ROI kind of thing? Yeah. So I think, um, I think there's sort of like, there are like extra, there are externalities and, uh, and then there's sort of their internal heuristics or phenotypes. You know, the externalities, I think the best investors have a confluence of three things, which is access, signal, and influence. And that's the audience of that is usually your founders. And I think typically you actually get that from building and having a skill set to relate to. Not always the case, but I think sort of that's one thing I've always observed. You know, I think most importantly on touching on the intrinsic value that I think um, successful investors always carry with them. I think the one thing is the constant ability to relearn things and um, get away from, from bias or confirmation bias that I think can tend to cloud uh, investment judgment. And relearning things tend to be hard. You know, I think I remember uh, reading about some, some investor, actually speaking of the investor I know particularly well, where I think they did some consumer company in the past, you know, six years ago, and it didn't work out for whatever reason. But collectively, the investor who was a part of that partnership, with the company, found a new investment in the space in the complete, complete exact same thing, just different time. I questioned uh, her assumptions, and I think that led to sort of a large, you know, success for, for that specific firm. And so, it's constantly sitting with the present, understanding that uh, you need to relearn things is the most important thing. Update your perspectives and get data that does not confirm what you're looking for. Uh, you know, I think second to that is, um, as you do that, having the intuition to not know if you're going to be right or wrong within a four to five year time horizon, and you have to trust the objectivity of your analysis and sit with it because venture has long feedback loops and you be told you're wrong for four years, but on that fifth year, you could be right. And I think, uh, having that mental framework, those two mental frameworks is what I've seen in terms of successful investors. Yeah. And speaking of long feedback loops, we know that eventually most investors are going to miss out on an opportunity or company they didn't see kind of really taken off because maybe at the time the solution was completely different. They took a pivot and it just rockets off. Right. But you had the chance to invest maybe from day one. So looking back at your career um, and kind of just investing and going through that process, what is the potentially biggest miss? You don't have to mention the company name, of course, but uh, like, how have you managed that potential regret? And like, how does it weigh on you in terms of like your current day to day? Yeah, this is a tough question because uh, I think about it every single day. I won't name the companies, but there's been like one or two where, you know, we had a chance early and you see their billboards all over one on one. That's not an indication of success, but like by all regards, you know, they're, they're doing well. Um, the thing that I learned from that was I got built myself on the curiosity that draws me to venture in particular, the curiosity I needed in this, in this case scenario was to ask myself what could go right in the next 18, 24, sort of 36 months. I didn't ask that. And I didn't think that through. And now as I sort of think, you know, think through, uh, how I can incorporate this going further, the first question I always ask myself is what can go right? And then conversely, what can go wrong, sit with those two thoughts. And if I still feel like there's this innate pool of things that can go right based on like objectivity, then, you know, I think for me, that's the biggest learning I had coming from that is like, you know, it probably makes more sense to actually now go forward and not make the same mistake twice. Um, that is, I think the biggest thing I, I feel like in venture, it's very easy. I, you know, you have to be extremely smart to come up with reasons why not to do investment. I think the best investors can come up with reasons to do it. And that's certainly a lesson that I learned early on and uh, am very keenly aware of going forward. And where does like kind of mentorship sit in all of this? Because um, we know like usually someone is available to you, take their X amount more of years of experience and give you feedback on some of these things. So where is that kind of sat uh, with you? And maybe do you have a mentor that you received some type of feedback from? Yeah, I'm actually very fortunate here with, uh, with Bridge Ventures in terms of the partner set that I have that can sort of lean on specific things. You know, in particular, I have a sort of group set of uh, uh, mentors that I'm close with that have been in venture for probably 20 plus years, maybe 60 or close to 50 on aggregate. 
And I go to them all the time and just ask them questions about what I'm thinking, what they're thinking through, how do you think about the market in sort of a very vulnerable way. And they tend at their, and they usually are just very cautious of making sure that they instill down some of the lessons they've learned, but also give me the fluidity and framework to make the mistakes on my own. I think that's the most important too. I think if you avoid trying to take, avoid trying to make risks as an investor, especially particularly early stage, I would argue you're not trying hard enough because conceptually venture was started as risk capital and with risk come mistakes and you have to learn that the light rays. So I've, I've had a good balance with some of the mentors I've had in the industry and that sort of impart lessons, but always caveat, well, this was working for me at this specific time. You'll never know if you try it without yourself. And then I'm very ruthless about tracking those mistakes and learning from them and sitting with them, which I think is just helps me keep a sort of fluid mental thought in terms of how I approach investing. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And I think just having that support and having you yourself making that constructive kind of feedback and writing things down saying, I can improve on XYZ is a very important part, I think, of anyone's kind of day-to-day or kind of the program they kind of design for themselves to grow their career. Um, speaking of which, you know, we, t- we talked about having some kind of contrarian thought and kind of building a voice in VC. Generally speaking, then you probably have something or a view in the world that someone perhaps in the VC world doesn't agree with. So what is your hot take uh, with, with relationship to VC? Uh, yes, it's funny. I, I feel like um, some could agree with me, but I think largely some will disagree. I think often VCs take too much credit for the value that their founders create. And I also think that there's an, an imperceived weakness for a VC to say, I don't know. With consistent context switching, it's very hard to know everything. You can know a lot, many of things, but very hard to know every specific thing. And I have the belief in my hot take is that one should say, I don't know, but continuously figure out a way to continuously learn if they're not doing it on your own time and being you know, truthful with uh, founders. You know, I think actually saying I don't know is probably like in today's age, uh, you know, the dawning sage um, signal of wisdom. And I think that comes with time, right? Because I think you're being honest and truthful where I'd argue at the earliest stages, it's harder to divorce your VC than you're a real partner in real life. And so you want to build the foundation of trust based off of that. And I think there's something to that. So I'd probably say, you know, conflicts a few things. We stick way too much credit for the founders create. And I wish we said, uh, I don't know more often and figured a way to actually correct that uh, faster. I actually tend to agree with you on that point, specifically around the idea of, you know, saying, I don't know, or perhaps no in general. Um, the idea behind VC and a founder is kind of to build trust and a relationship. And if you're leading them on with the expectation of, I can do this for you, or like, I right. might know how to solve this you're either wasting their time or just going to lead them to a path where it's not going to be designed for them to be successful. Like we'll, we'll find some, some other way to find a solution to this. So it's, it's a very powerful kind of method. Um, so let's talk about actually some of the patterns you've noticed while working with some successful founders. We all know kind of the tangibles that come around with the company, metrics, traction, all of that. But at an early stage, typically, you're really focusing on some of the intangibles that a founder brings that can obviously later equal to scale, efficiency, whatever. So what are some intangibles that have stood out to you in the form of a founder that have given you the confidence to say, this founder can build this project and build something magical? Yeah, so I'll give you some sort of soft um, heuristics. And I think I'll give you the one common thing that takes time to really uncover. You know, the soft heuristics are, I think there's an essence of two things. What makes this founder particularly special? And what do they do particularly well, whether she or he has built, you know, products in the past that are perfect consumers or enterprise products that I think so, you know, from a top-down model. That is the one skill that I always want to define. And then you sort of ask yourself, is this founder warranted for the specific market, respected to peers or incumbents, and then will that work? And I think largely also one thing that happens very, uh, you know, it's the second heuristic and largely what I actually believe in is can this founder tell a very unique story? And to me, I think if you tell a unique story, you do two things. You paint the vision of the company looking back from 10 years, 10 years from now, right? So you have very incremental steps of how you can become a big, large company, starting with a deck or two people. 
what I think storytelling does well, particularly how far at the early stages, helps you do three important things. Helps you get customers, right? Because you're buying into a mission outside of sort of a you know, MVP product that's out you know, for a couple of weeks or months, what have you at the early stages. If second, you're able to recruit really top talent. And, uh, you know, if anything, and I true, I believe this is a cliche, but very true is like, you're only as good as the people you can hire. And I think that has an essence at the early stages to sell people, to storytell people on what the company will be, to leave a cushy job, to leave sort of comfort and come take a risk. And, you know, I think third, if you sort of think about this continuum of storytelling is um, selling or you know, sort of painting the narrative of what the company will be to investors who can see that vision with you. And so from sort of a default-like perspective, you have capital to make your dreams a vision. And those three, I think, all together with the variable of storytelling is right in the middle. And so, you know, and, and that's not always going to be the case, but then if not, then always rolling back on what makes this perfect person special. The other part outside of externalities is why. Uh, startups are inherently hard. We all know the metrics of failure. And you have to, I think, really spend time with someone to understand what, why are they doing what they're doing? How do you uncover what they're driven by? Is it sort of a top mimetic desire of fear? Is it greed? Is it deep insecurity? Or something that to that effect, and that comes with building a relationship. But I think if you can get down to why they are building things the way they are, you can offset the true reason why this company might succeed or might not succeed. And how they can sort of, you know, find a path that's linear where at the early stage, it's, it's just plenty of zigzags. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you the reverse of this then. Let's just say you have a founder that's very uh, charismatic and that personality shines. So the, the kind of individuals that usually pop up to me are like Adam Newman. You have, uh, what's her name from Theranos? I forgot, whatever. Um, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, Elizabeth Holmes. So they have very charismatic personalities. And so they're able to draw in attention, but also create this kind of FOMO around the opportunity. You as an investor have to try to kind of maybe see past that. I mean, only time can tell kind of where the investment's going to go. But knowing what we know now with like maybe five or six startups that have gone through this process and have completely destroyed some VCs, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's funny. I was telling someone like the other day, like you sort of want this, you know, phenotype of like, founder that is so ambitious and like right here is like all the founders that you just mentioned right like they're um elizabeth holmes etc and like it's just thin gap that you want to play in but how do you sort of suss that out i think there is something to the old saying uh you know assuming fraud until proven genius and i think if you start there so you're not fully optimistic into buying everything but you're cautiously and rationally optimistic into what the vision looks like I think second, and maybe the case from my understanding with uh, those two companies, particularly the founders there, is that usually uh, there are one to two to three people tied to those people who are actually doing all the work. And how is that relationship with the people who are actually, whether it's like another co-founder or technical co-founder, what does that relationship look like? And is that relationship actually based on the center of truth, right? Or deception? I think as an investor, and it's important, especially at the stage, just of course you're building a relationship with the founder, but even more important to build a relationship with the team. And so you have a direct way to actually sort of suss out, you know, fiction from reality. And I think that's a good way to sort of counter that, uh, that spell, if you will. And I think, you know, generally the industry is, it still happens. I think we've seen this as of late, but I think generally we're getting a bit more uh, rational in our approach in terms of not falling in love with the iconoclastic founders. Yeah, it's, it's challenging for sure, um, especially if you see their cap table and they have like big names, herd mentality yeah. proceeds, and it's just like, oh, we need to get on this opportunity. So just think, sticking to your thesis and understanding your process is definitely a part of it. Obviously, I, I can't really say that I'm not a VC, but that's kind of like the common thought process I go through when investing in anything. So uh, let's move on to this idea of now the founders have some funding, they have to kind of s- grow and scale a team. Most founders um, that are younger, obviously, do not have a leadership background, have not managed anyone, um, especially even a small team, let alone a large team. 
So any advice for founders on how to maybe successfully build culture and become great leaders? Yeah, you know, having not started a company myself, but observed and operating at one from sort of growth early stage, I think there's a few characteristics that come to mind. I think is one, understanding where your weaknesses are and sort of hiring against that. But also as you do that, have sort of a full sense of trust. Culture is effectively started on like day one of the company. And so how do you set that ethos up? And culture is also driven by what the top looks like. And so how are you actually being a steward of what you preach is how it actually sort of thinks through that. You know, I think that the last um, uh, framework I'd probably just have is um, how do you at some point foster a culture that actually allows for mistakes? And I think at the earliest stages, the best companies I've seen and worked for or worked, you know, at a prior life, there's room for mistakes. And I think mistakes is a great way to experiment what needs to be done. At the early stages, when you're just trying to find product market fit, I would argue that every organization with a respective company needs to have an ethos of experimentation. And you do that by being willing to reward mistakes in a prudent manner. Uh, and with that as well, like it's okay to hire and make experiments when hiring your team. You know, I think sub 500 employees or so, you're just hiring generalists with maybe a few specialists past that as you scare you're going to hire specialists. And to have a framework to actually understanding uh, and experimenting with who you hire and who can work particularly well. For example, a lot of developer tooling companies, you know, marketing shifting from traditional top down, SEO, et cetera, to developer relations, right? So if, you can, if you're selling to developers, you should speak to developers. And often I've sort of heard this um, complaint of, we can't find a great dev rel team or manager or leader. And, you know, my argument would be like, well, can you find someone who is a very good developer or engineer that likes to talk to other developers every day, that is on Hacker News commenting and sort of building a community on that base, right? So there's essence of experimenting with, I think, respective organizations, and that certainly bleeds through in, in, into the product. So confluence of those variables, I think, uh, is what I've seen in terms of early teams or young teams in terms of management and what particularly works well. Yeah, and in my experience, what I've seen some teams do is they hire like this president uh, individual. And so that is like the senior most guy or girl uh, in the organization has tons of leadership experience and basically gives you that kind of other kind of thought process around, yes, maybe this is the right thing. No, this is not how you should think about this. But also in the background is really helping define some of the workflows and processes around how you define your culture and leadership. So I've seen that methodology work quite well, just because uh, you have almost like an executive coach internally. Yeah. Now I want to talk about the specifics around the relationship that a VC needs to have with a founder. Specifically, what do you feel like is the single biggest point of misalignment that VCs have with their founders? I think that's probably incentives. Um, and that is, those are incentives probably driven from, I think, understanding, um, yeah, sort of just general modern day portfolio construction. Right. And I think often that could come in terms of just VC's bandwidth in terms of how much time they have to actually help. And I've seen that been an incentive or I actually think, yeah, the specific value add that a VC fund can bring in this specific captain, this specific investment case isn't actually what the team needs and isn't as helpful. And so I think if you're in a board setting, and I particularly think this is true, like Peter Bill Gurley said this, 99% of boards or VCs add sort of detrimental value. And so you can see that sort of guide young founders or even seasoned founders into the wrong direction. And I think it's misalignment of incentives. I also think it's um, understanding your circle of competence, not to give advice and actually recognize when you don't have anything value additive at specific time, which... I think will sort of detract from value in terms of the founders. I also just think it's, you know, setting the game relatively straight, right? What drives venture firms to continue to be around, right? And sort of those long tail, or the, at least in North stage, long tail of successful winners. And so understanding the portfolio construction from the founder side, I think helps sort of align that incentive. And also from the VC side, right? In, in terms of understanding what the founders need at a specific time. I think you, 
where it works out well is you can find alignment on those incentives. Um, and then I think you can sort of build a foundational trust off of that because it is such a long-term game. Actually, it's not a game. It's, it's, these are lives and it's just a very long-term partnership. And um, I think understanding the long-term not acting within three to four years does both parties well. Yeah, no, totally makes sense to me. And so maybe a random question here, but one thing I'm getting a, a lot of founders asking me recently is the idea around secondaries. Uh, and how to kind of go about that idea. Um, we've seen a lot of it actually kind of going through the pipeline with all these valuations going down and whatnot, right? So it is impacting a founder and most of the, their net worth is tied to their shares, yeah. right? So you want to take off some risk as soon as you kind of scale. It's natural to do that. So any best practices related to that topic specifically that you can share with perhaps a founder who's listening to this right now? Yeah, I'd say historically, I think where this is done best is usually once there's an inflection point of scale for a specific company, and scale could be whatever relative to the metrics and things in terms of it going right, um, or efficient growth, or just efficient, whatever it might be. But particularly, I think it, secondaries is more common around sort of the B and C stage, because at that point, you could probably prove that you've built a product their customers are willing to pay for and they're coming back for, and the efficiency that you do that hopefully gets sort of get better over time on the growth stages. And, you know, I think for me particular, I think secondaries is a great practice for a lot of founders, right? In terms of um, understanding the long-term in five, 10-year increments, having more patience for that, you know, with the intent of some better liquidity event down the road, whether it's going public or getting acquired at the right price, founder likes or agrees with. You buy long-term patience because yes, it's a very lonely or hard job as a founder and, um, you know, I think there's something to having just safety along the way to know that you'll be okay. And particularly places like the Bay Area or, you know, New York, for example, extremely expensive to live here, let alone build the company. And if you want to do it as a founder with kids, it's very tough, right? And um, I think there are certain situations where it definitely warrants that. It's healthier, I see on the growth stages where you usually prove something out. And that could be a very various tangibles of what you proved out. But that, to me, I think is a is a healthy practice I'm a big proponent of. Yeah, and I, I feel like a lot of founders get into this guilt trap of like, ooh, I'm taking away some money or yeah. I'm taking away shares. I always tell them, like, that's not the case. You built this out, so you kind of deserve it in a sense, right? So it's okay to kind of live your life um, the way you need it or kind of the lifestyle that you want to live. Um, obviously, don't dilute yourself to the point where you have nothing. But uh, taking some off the table is totally fine. To kind of do your thing because yeah just, and I, yeah I, to, to interrupt i actually think there's something better too right is um you you should not feel guilt but i also think it's very wise i usually connect my founders with other founders or the founders i get to work for with other founders who just took secondaries yeah so there's a framework to sort of learn of how do you best use this sort of windfall that come that's come right and you do so in a way that's sustained absolutely absolutely i think the founder to founder thing is usually the best approach rather than like a finance guy just saying hey this is the best yeah. xyz approach uh, talk to someone who's actually done it and maybe able to tell you their perspective. Um, so, so that's kind of like the top level kind of VC, kind of your background topics that I wanted to chat about. Now let's get into the kind of the real world. Um, and specifically, I wanted to get your thoughts on something that's really out in the news now is this evolution that Twitter is going through and also maybe to an extent other big tech companies because we've seen it quite a bit now. Um, so one thing that we saw immediately happen was folks being let go. Now, this may be a hot take, but I first personally felt that many of these tech companies over the last couple of years were very bloated and had quite some time to kind of add all these resources, but didn't have enough time to actually execute on all the work that had to be done or innovation that had to be needed, right? So they needed a refresh. So any thoughts on that specifically? Uh, you know, maybe I'll sort of just throw out my, uh, optimistic take here is, um, I think we're certainly going to sense that a lot of, a lot of these larger companies can be, um, extremely efficient sort of path, the OPEX, if you will. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, you know, the long-term, why is that matter? You're building sort of a valuable company that can sustain sort of multiple cycles and you're setting a structure and a framework to do so. For companies who are at that scale, but at some point aspire to be that scale. 
So I think there's a good playbook in, in hand, and we're seeing this sort of live drill beyond the next couple of years of how this actually uh, yeah, comes to benefit, uh, to manifest. But like, if you can run an efficient business, at the end of the day, you're securing more jobs down the road so you can avoid this. And so I think that's a good playbook of you know, the next set of, what well, if you call these Twitters, you call these the Googles, the large, large companies in the world. You know, there's the second take is you are still very, there are still very much talented people working at these companies that were shipping real products that are really smart, that are really ambitious. And you're sort of set now with this, this interesting equation, right? It's a math equation. So you have really strong tech talent, whether it's technical, whether it's whatever, what have you, that is available for the first time on the market. And you have a sort of, um, you know, largely active, as still as you want to say, early stage venture ecosystem. And so you have supply and demand kind of meeting each other for the first time. And I'm very optimistic and I'm starting to see trends of this already. People leaving these large companies and starting to build something ambitious for the first time and, and you know, trying out. Now there's a huge downpour of co-founders that people can meet. And so, you know, for the long-term prosperous tech ecosystem in, in, in the next U- 10 years in the U.S. or even globally, I think we're going to have more value creation. It's just going to be more dispersed and not aggregated across these companies. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I think maybe just to add on top of that, I feel like many of those who are let go are very smart, very talented. And I do feel like there's a a new onset of technology or innovation that's going to come about with these folks actually creating new companies. So it's an interesting kind of thing. You have all these engineers before they're just like, I'm going to kind of make a million dollars a year, which many of these individuals were. Um, And now they go to kind of like ground zero where, a lot of smaller companies don't even get to that level. So, hey, let's just build something. So going back to Twitter for a second, um, specifically our, our man, Elon, um, what do you feel about his approach around kind of the new model that Twitter is building out? Things that you like versus things that you don't. Yeah. And, you know, sort of a caveat for the audience, um, I've been trying to actively not sort of spend time here, just giving it consumes. Most of my Twitter feed and uh, yeah, my yeah, content yeah. diet. But, you know, I, I so, so I say that with like limited, I think, day-to-day interactions, but you're standing here, uh, you know, mid-February and sort of, I think I'll give a snapshot reality of my impression so far. I think he's certainly proven out like you can run the efficient business and, you know, get rid of bloat and stop servicing products that works. Um, it's completely radical what he's doing in the sense of running a lean, large company in a way that is very anti-CEO in terms of how we define a CEO in the last decade across tech or non-tech. And that can be good or bad. I'm not sure where the jury's landing out on that, partly because I feel like with a figure like Elon, there is no middle ground. There are Elon supporters and then there are Elon sort of, you know, non-supporters, if you want, those are the two camps on. Um, you know, what I, the question I had that comes to mind is he didn't have to buy Twitter. He didn't have, he's running like four to five other companies. Yet he sees some value in here and he see, seems perceptually that he's giving all his best to actually make it turn around. But I do think he's setting a blueprint in terms of if you're at one of these large companies, you can effectively half X, you know, ha- cut your OPEX in half and you could run an efficient business. Um, who knows how that turned out? It's, I'm also very empathetic to the fact that a lot of really smart people left their jobs or left Twitter in a way that I actually don't agree with, right? In terms of their servants not being paid and all these other things. Um, partly because of their lives on the, and families on the other side. And I certainly think you could have done better there. And um, other companies, I hope, are doing better there too in terms of thinking about these mass riffs. So I guess on, on you know, the pro side, can show that you can run relatively lean as a large company with large distribution. You know, second on the, the con side is, um, you know, I think he didn't necessarily handle, hasn't handled uh, the, the fire the employees let go in an efficient, empathetic manner, which I believe warrants that. Yeah, I know. There's definitely pros and cons. And you have, like you mentioned, the two camps. So you're going to have the ride or dies for Elon versus the other side, yeah. right? It almost gets into a t- political debate, which I obviously wanted to avoid. But um, yeah. so speaking of, I guess, getting into some political risk here, um, we know a lot of these large information dense social platforms uh, have an ever evolving kind of issue around censorship. I can't even say the word censorship. 
yeah. so what is your opinion on some of the potential risks that exist? Um, maybe specific to say TikTok. We know that's a open door and we know we've seen some back doors or whatever you want to call it in the platform. Like what, what are your thoughts on that given your experience or knowledge of the space? Yeah, you know, I think that's particularly true of my time at Cloudflare, where I think with any good security, any security company that matter, you're sort of acting, you're not acting, you're, you're fighting off bad actors on the internet. And large, largely, most of the time, there's two camps of these bad actors, right? There's the 14-year-olds hacking from a basement somewhere uh, in the U.S. or where it might be. And then you have nation states. And I think for me, particularly nation states is the biggest concern. If I think about warfare in the next 10 years, I don't think it's us. I don't think it's people driving tanks into lands and countries that are on their own. I actually think it's hacking into respective systems that we all use today and leveraging that country's, you know, said military for their own demise, right? And doing so all, you know, in your own specific homeland, safe and secure for that matter. And so to me, this is a large threat. I think that we have to ask ourselves going forward is, are we educated enough as consumers to understand the potential harms of our digital, you know, daily usage? Who actually owns the data to it? And then, you know, partly, are we being secure consumers of whatever we're consuming? And I think actually third is how do we build, you know, tech one and two is how do we build a faster feedback loop from the private sector here, specifically in Silicon Valley to DC? And, you know, I think, um, and the Airtrain is actually doing that particularly well, leveraging AI. I read something today, and I think this is generally true. I think Einstein, you know, wrote to Eisenhower in the 30s or so. It said nuclear power actually changed the war. And there's something akin to what AI is doing. It could change, I think, true nation state powers today. And I think, you know, the U.S. in particular is very strong here. I also think China with Baidu and all these other companies in the past, really good talent too, is how do we sort of bridge that gap, right? Because this is where warfare is going. This is, I think, where censorship's going to matter. And how do we sort of build a, you know, a, a quick feedback loop to ensure that we're sort of leading, but we're also doing the right thing. The internet, in my, in my opinion, and I'm a hardened believer of net neutrality, now it's sending, I think things are illegal and illegal. The internet is meant to be a democratized free place. Actually started as an ARPANET, right? If the world went down, like you still had four computers in the West Coast able to talk to each other. One of the University of Utah, I think Stanford, et cetera. And the internet, the beauty of the internet is it is a free speech platform. And I think we have to respect that. There are good and bad things that happen in free speech, but reality is the internet is just a manifestation of human behavior. And so, um, you know, we have to come to the guardrails. Humans will be humans. Uh, but we have to be sort of understanding that this is a true power and we need to put guardrails to actually use it to our advantage. So we're not at risk at harm, which I actually think is happening at large scale. Yeah, no, very interesting take. And that's particularly why I'm actually interested in more of the security space and kind of where it's actually going and seeing how we can layer on. So, um, yeah, moving on to something like pretty cool. I had to you know, very cool experience with two of your friends, uh, Erica and John. So Erica's from OpenView. John runs his own company. And so I got a bit of an inside scoop on you, right? So I'm going to format this into kind of three questions. So okay. first thing, I'd love to ask you what your friends thought of you was your th strongest skill. What do you think that was? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> this is good. This is good. This is good. I mean, I like what you're doing, man. This is a good kick. Uh, what my friends, uh, this is like a, I feel like a self-narcissism pass. Uh, strongest skill. Okay. I think maybe they, uh, I would say I'm empathetic above, uh, above the average. Yeah. So Erica specifically said you're one of the most personable individuals that she's met and your ability to actually connect with another individual has really kind of resonated. and it also has translated back into you being a successful investor because we talked about this before. The core of a VC is to partner up with your founders. It's not so much a transactional relationship. So being empathetical towards the relationship and building that is very important. John mentioned the same thing. And you guys had a very kind of personal experience um, that, you know, related around your parents, right? And the fact that you two kind of had this bonding moment and sat and kind of connected, they kind of point towards that as being your strongest skill of like really understanding the core of who that individual is 
and taking that core and maybe helping them out and kind of helping them grow. I don't know if you agree or like you uh, are surprised by that, but that's kind of what they thought of you. Well, I just, I don't, I mean, I just have really nice friends and unfortunately I have really good friends. Shout out, shout out, very thoughtful of them. The other thing I asked them is tell me something about Zane that other people won't know or be surprised about. So I learned, first of all, congrats on the twins, by the way. Thank you. That's, Thank that's you. a big thing. So that's obviously I didn't have that context prior to. But the coolest thing that came out of that is Erica told me that you run a venture dads group. So I do. Share that story with me and how that came about. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's really good. Uh, and by the way, open invite to any dads out there. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah, so it sort of came about like this. You know, I think talking with a few peers relatively young into the venture career uh, and being your fathers was, and you know, this is, I certainly can't even empathize what it's like in terms of being a VC and a mother, we're just naturally, I feel like, especially in the West, child rearing naturally falls on the mother. And so there's yeah. a lot more constraints I don't understand. This came about this conversation originally, uh, just a bunch of our friends talking about parenting, being a father, trying to be a good husband, trying to raise kids in this world that we live in today. And, you know, I think particularly in venture is um, how do you, you know, in a, in a sort of industry where you're tied to fame one way or the other, Yeah, yeah. how do you stay grounded, right? And how do you find love and impact in a way that actually moves the needle and, you know, outside of sort of financial returns. And so it was a period of this, like, you know, just a general peer set of friends who's thought and see the world in the same way. And it's a good way to, I think, stay grounded and realize what's important, right? It's, you know, not being, a, you know, at the cemetery and on your, you know, plaque saying Midas list investor for 10 yeah, years straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you could have that and maybe that drives value for you. But, you know, certainly is great to align with people, I think, um, that get the greatest joy from being with their family and kids and, that, that was uh, the rationale for the group. And it's been great to just exchange notes and be vulnerable with one another. Yeah, to me, it's just almost taking that strong skill that you have and translating it into something powerful, right? So uh, thank you. I love this idea. And it's uh, definitely something I haven't come across before. So they also said you're quite the avid basketball player. I've seen you kind of run the basketball groups and they're like, he could have been D1. I don't know if they're sarcastic or whatever, but they're like, yeah, he, he ran with the, I guess with the high school team that you played with was pretty, uh, pretty strong. So uh, like, yeah, he, he's a very strong basketball player. Um, yeah. So I, you know, the key is you just close your eyes, shoot the ball and the clock <laughs> is right twice a day. And so, yeah, you got to shoot your shots, right? Some of yeah. Um Okay. Last one here. Uh, where do you feel like your peers will tell you to improve? Oh, this is a good question. So many things to improve on. Oh man, this is good. Um, I think finding my voice. Mm. So Erica and John both mentioned one thing. So you having your empath- empathetic view and kind of this kind heart, it also could be one of the kind of weaknesses that you might have mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the idea of opening up yourself up too much and kind of having this vulnerability. And not assessing the entire scenario because you're really kind in terms of kind of the approach. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So they, they, their reflection on that is like, you're very strong, but that strong skill op- also opens up some areas where you could improve on related to that. And just being more cognizant around the idea of just like take a more thorough thought process um, rather than just jumping in and uh, using your heart as your kind of your approach to solve your issues. So. Um, that's what their, that's, their feedback was. I don't disagree. Uh, it's, you know, falls in line with usually your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So yeah, that, that's kind of like that little fun little cool. segment that I, I added in and I, I, I loved it as well. So, um, that's the bulk of the podcast there, man. Uh, one thing we always love ending off with is a quick lightning round, uh, cool. four questions really quick. Uh, let me know when you're ready. Let's do it. Sweet. Uh, favorite book of all time. How You Measure Light by Clay Christensen and uh, James Allworth. Sweet. Um, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be? Uh, Qadi Azam. So Qadi Azam was sort of the revolution 
leader of Pakistan with Gandhi mm. and sort of the partition from the British. Yeah, Gali Azam. Cool, cool. What tech or innovation are you most excited about that's not generative AI? Improvements to my Kindle. Okay. <laughs> that's a unique one. Um, and last question, we saved the most controversial for last. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? This is a hot take because uh, I grew up, my dad owned a Chuck E. Cheese and I made many pineapple and ham pizzas before. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to say no. You know, I, I like okay. a good fashion old margarita, so I'm quite boring here. All right. So we're on the same team there. I'm not a real fan of pineapple. Fruits don't belong on pizza. So uh, Zane, yeah. thanks so much for doing this. Any last words for their audience and maybe where they can find you? Uh, yeah, usually on, on Twitter or the interwebs, my email is pretty easy to find. Um, I'm on just thanks for the time. Really appreciate what you're doing. It's, uh, it's awesome seeing your platform particularly grow and 